Hiya, Georgie. And welcome to So You Think That Was Good, Do You? A podcast where we take a look back at the films from your childhood and question the absurdity of their universes. My name is Evan, and this week I'm joined by a solo Carl. Carl, how you doing, buddy? Mate, that was an incredible impression. You should be so proud. Thanks, that was definitely me. <laughs> I, I did an impression of you doing an impression of it. And uh, Well, don't say that, because if it was terrible, I want people to think it was you. <laughs> I always overestimate how good I am at things. <laughs> I'm like an only child. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know how I'm doing. We had to cancel for a day yeah. because I had a very severe bout of hay fever. And anyone who's never suffered with that is going to think, oh, he's just had a bout of the sniffles. And those people can go fuck themselves because, my God, I was rough. It's a real disease. <laughs> <laughs> it was in a bad way. We, we sat down, got everything ready, and I just went, yeah. nah, we're not doing this. It wouldn't have been feasible. Editing alone. <laughs> I am also good, I guess. Uh, this is only the second time I've ever snuck in how I'm feeling into an episode. We're 70 in. <laughs> I guess I'm still fine. <laughs> we'll check in in about 25 episodes time. <laughs> I don't even know if I did all of my intro there. I was so loving your impression that I, I have no idea. In the edit, I guess I'll find out. I think you will be the only one loving that impression. It is all I've done since I watched <laughs> that movie two days ago is walk around trying to sound like Pennywise the Clown. Well, there it is, if you couldn't guess, uh, from <laughs> Cole outright saying the movie there, and from the amazing impression. We watched It from the 1990 miniseries. We started with part one, because that's <laughs> that aired as, good as idea. two episodes, yes. And because this movie is a, God, eye-watering three hours, and we struggle to do two-hour movies sometimes because it's so many plot points and so many notes and the recordings just, they get a bit long. So we, we did part one as it aired on TV and God, it is not the movie I, I remembered. There's a lot less happening in this first part. And this is the one people liked, by the way. I, I did some research after to see what people thought of these movies and people were like, yeah, part one was excellent. Part two, where all the stuff happens, by the way, people do not like. <laughs> that seems to be the case for both them, because the most recent versions, no one was really a fan of the one where it's adults. I think when it's a bunch of kids, it almost gets a few added points for nostalgia porn, in a way. You just get to go, oh, 1980s America, what a time to be alive. But then it gets to being adults, and they're just all living the same miserable shit we are. <laughs> oh, my, my husband hits me. Oh, I'm gay. Is the clown the most of your worries? Your life is good. <laughs> well, let's get into that clown, actually, because this stars Tim Curry, who I bloody adore. Me and Chloe are massive fans of the film Clue. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I haven't. For me, whenever I think of Tim Curry, I think the wild thornberries. Also excellent. I forget that he's in that. Do you have an impression of Nigel Thornberry for me? I'll look away. <laughs> oh, I left that one at home, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, no. He's also in Muppets Treasure Island, which is another favourite of mine and Chloe's. I love the song Professional Pirate more than I love anything. Fantastic. And Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's him, isn't it? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes, we also love that movie. I love Tim Curry. He's also <laughs> yeah. in Scary Movie 2. He's also in Command and Conquer. When I, when I discovered that, like, three years ago i had to go play the games just because he's that awesome the first one i can't remember which one it was i downloaded now but yeah he's just i, I found out he does all the cutscenes, so i was like i might go play that don't go play that it's too old never go back <laughs> i'll just watch the tim curry cutscenes on youtube they are all now on youtube <laughs> 
oh god are there actors in this I don't know if there's anyone I could... Well, Seth Green, an actor everybody would know who is one of the children in this movie. But other than that, these are your classic Goosebumps stars. Seth Green, fully grown, I think, at this point. <laughs> Maximum height. <laughs> this is my final four. Yeah. He, he is playing Richie. There are a lot of yes, kids Richie. in this. He is Richie. playing Richie, age 12, while Seth Green is 16 years old in this. <laughs> he is a lot older than the other kids in this. He just squeaked in. There's only <laughs> one other kid who is by far way older than everyone, and we'll, we'll get to him. Well, are we ready there then, Carl? I was about to try and do that impression again, but I'm going to leave it just as is. I got it once. Leave it. You, you nailed it. I'll just copy and paste it in here and I'll cut this. <laughs> just All good. me saying hiya, Georgie, over and over again. <laughs> Making no sense at all. So, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to search for specific things on this miniseries. Firstly, you have to try and not get information on it, chapters one and two that came out last decade? Yeah, 2017 and maybe 2019, something like that. Yeah. And secondly, if you ever include the word it as your primary search <laughs> term, it refuses to use that and will use any other word you've typed in. So this is the best plot synopsis I could get, which is just two lines about part one of the miniseries. Here we go. Seven outcast children band together to destroy a shape-shifting clown killing children in their town. That's it. But at least it rhymed. <laughs> and it's technically true. So maybe all other plot synopses, synopsises, synopsises, synopsises could learn no a idea. trick or two from this. It doesn't sound right, but we've gone with it. Well, let's begin. Let's, let's, let's get into it. Part one, 1990. The movie opens on the small town of Derry. Also, forgot to mention, this was written by Stephen King. You probably all know that. Derry is in most of his books as well, so there you go. Laurie Ann has been called in by her mother because of an oncoming storm in the town. Ooh, metaphors. Uh, and she's taken basically in her own garden by Pennywise. We see him immediately. There is no mystery in this movie. We see the clown in broad daylight. She gets, she gets fucked. The police arrive immediately because she's the fifth kid to go missing in the town. Of oh, a sixth child to go missing or die in the town, I've written here. And also on the scene is Mike Hanlin, one of our seven main cast for this movie. So remember his name. He's the local librarian and he's snooping around the crime scene. One thing I wanted to note about this because it stands out so much. Did you notice all the police officers are wearing raincoats from the, the music video It's Raining Men? Bright yellow, like like fishermen's <laughs> waterproof raincoats. I didn't notice. Is that true? I want to go back and look now. I promise you they are all wearing it. I thought Mike Hanlon was the detective. And like no, you same, get yeah. to, you graduate out of your yellow raincoat if you get like the, you know, the detective badge. And you could just wear your own clothes to work. And all the rest are forced to wear these big yellow luminous coats. The trainee jacket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, just really stood out to me. They, they tell Hanlin to get lost. You know, he's trying to find out more about what's going on because he's got some connection to, to what's happening. Yeah, these cops seem weirdly questionable. Like, if I didn't know the story, I would 100% assume they were in on the conspiracy in some way or another. Five and six-year-old kids are going missing. And he's just like, oh, kids get itchy feet all the time and just leave. Do they? 
is that what happens? I suppose if we're thinking about teenagers who are unhappy at home, but this girl was not even seven. She still has a tricycle. <laughs> yeah. If, if I hadn't seen the newest movie, I would assume 100% this cop is in the pocket of Big Clown. For sure. Just 10 feet of multicoloured handkerchiefs all tied together and then this cop on the end of it. He opens his big yellow jacket and there's a flower there that squirts water on you. Yeah, super suspicious. I think, though, specifically in It, but always in Stephen King books, adults are like kind of complacent, not very helpful characters. They're not going to believe what you tell them and they'll almost work against you. But yeah, Mike Handling concedes that he's probably not welcome here on this crime scene and he, he can't do much as just a librarian. As he's walking away, a picture is floating through the air. He walks over to it and he takes a good look at it and it's a picture of Georgie. This is in the present day and Georgie died some time ago and he can't really believe he's seeing it. I love that he reads this as a supernatural event, but I'd argue that this picture has more than likely been just floating around on the street for three decades. (laughs) And every year there's a budgetary meeting where the council has to vote on either hiring street cleaners or buying a new set of jazzy coats for the boys in blue. (laughs) And this season, yellow is the new blue what i was wondering about this was and this might just be because i'm misremembering the story so did pennywise lay this picture out if he did and it hasn't just been laid there for 30 years to lure them back because my understanding was that when they come back he's trying to scare them off to leave yes this is going to play into a sort of theory i have for later but i think because mike chose to stay in town Pennywise is antagonistic towards him. But I don't know if this is just because Mike is investigating, he just perceives this event. I don't know if Pennywise is specifically in control of it. But I, I mean, I, I'm sure we're going to get into this. I'm not really sure what Pennywise is in control of or what his powers are, or if things just happen around him because he's there. But the picture specifically, I, maybe he did put it out so he calls everyone back so he can get his revenge. Because this is what triggers him to, oh, by the way, everyone, prepare yourself for an hour of phone calls because that's what's <laughs> coming up. <laughs> this is, if it were a heist movie, the entire first movie is getting the gang together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ocean's phone bill. <laughs> We're then taken over to Bill Denborough. He's working on a script for the movie version of one of the novels he's put out. And really why I'm mentioning Bill is because he's so clearly a cutout, a stand-in for Stephen King in this movie. I mean, yeah, every Stephen King movie, or well, every Stephen King book has a fucking writer in it. He has an incredible imagination, but he is still right what you know. And what he knows is writers. Writers poets and then takes a lot of cocaine and comes up with a story that involves writers and poets he actually writes himself into the dark tower his most famous work well actually maybe not his largest work my entire um, knowledge of the dark tower is just whenever sam finds a very racist line in there and just takes a photo of it and puts it in the group chat just goes the fuck is this and every time stephen king writes about a kid being beautiful which is <laughs> if you read his books a lot yeah After 2017's It, I decided to read the book and I got to probably about the point you get to in this this, uh, miniseries where we are now. And then 
read online in the build-up to number two coming out that there's just a random scene in there where the girl gets all the guys to have sex with her so they all remember and i just went i don't think this is for me we are going to talk about that later as well but is yeah it's probably the most famous scene in the book because a lot of people don't really know why it happens so i just have stephen king's it sat on the side just kind of about halfway through that i've just never carried on with because you know it's coming i know they're all coming bev yeah Well, Bill receives a call from Mike Hanlon, the librarian we just met, who tells him that it has returned to Derry. Bill is kind of reeling from this. He lies to his wife about who called and he scurries back to his office to kind of contemplate what what Mike has just told him. And in this process, he has a flashback. So he's a kid now. He's sick in bed. His little brother, Georgie, probably the most famous person from this movie, wants to play with his paper boat outside. Bill puts some paraffin on the boat so it'll float out in the out in the, the gutters and down into the storm drains. <laughs> it's a different time. The reason I specifically wanted to mention this is because now we see who the inspiration for the police department's full catalogue was, and it was bloody Georgie, because he's wearing that exact same coat. So I like to imagine... <laughs> Every year, the police department gets together, they flick through old case files and perp records, and they pick outfits that they like the most, and there's almost like a bidding for what they all get to wear that year. Well, later on in the movie, as spoilers, as they're heading into the sewers, one of, I think it might be Seth Green's character, is also wearing one of those bright yellow waterproof coats. So I'm just thinking that maybe there was a deal on when they were getting the costumes ready for this movie. If you buy one child size coat, you get 12 adult coats free. <laughs> and we'll throw in a Seth Green size coat too. It's somewhere in the middle. Somewhere between the two, yeah. <laughs> well, famously, Georgie loses his boat down a storm drain where Pennywise, the dancing clown, is waiting for him. He lures him in with promises of balloons and carnivals and all other stuff kids will like. Georgie gets too close, and Pennywise has a great old time, doesn't he? He he murders another kid. That's what he loves to do. So in this one, they say that he had his arm ripped off. My understanding from the 2017 one is that Georgie's just missing. So in this one, does he just take the arm? Yes, because they actually bury Georgie, don't they? It's coming up soon. They have a funeral for him, and there's a coffin, and you assume there's something in there. Because he also leaves some other kids just lying about. So sometimes he just takes a bite and goes. (laughs) In the 2017 one, he is hungry for these kids. It always confused me how any kid would go anywhere near this clown because the character being played doesn't even come across as remotely friendly. Bill Skarsgård is in that gutter staring without blinking with his big yellow eyes and drooling down himself. (laughs) You're right. That's funny because I just pictured that so perfectly in my head. It is interesting, though, the the two different Pennywises. Tim Curry is a lot more campy in the way he approaches this, but still manages to be scary. I feel like Tim Curry is really leaning into the clown side of what Pennywise is meant to be. Because you can sort of imagine... Pennywise the clown in this movie at like a what I, an English person who has no idea what Coney Island is, assumes Coney Island is full of smoking clowns. <laughs> but Pennywise is an alien pretending to be a human. And I feel like that's more what Bill Skarsgård's Pennywise is. He never comes across as human. He comes across as something acting human-ish. 
very uncanny valley. He is a monster who just happens to look like a clown. Yeah, he's made himself look like a clown, but... He doesn't know how to act like a clown. He saw a clown, but that was it. He didn't do any other research. <laughs> he thought that's what all humans look like, and went with that, and then he didn't cover up all the drooling <laughs> and the biting and the gasping. The, the first person he saw when he landed <laughs> on Earth was a clown, and he just went, oh, that's what the population here look like. Best blend in. I don't know if the 2017 ones are based in 2017, or are they still the 80s? I think the first one's based in the 80s, and then the the second one is modern day. Okay, then you change from a clown, right? Because nobody likes clowns now. Everybody would notice a You remember five years ago when there were people like just dressed as clowns terrorising people in the UK, and there was a big police response to it, because nobody likes clowns. They weren't even doing anything particularly illegal. It's just because they were clowns, the police got involved. Well, I think it wasn't five years ago. I think it was six years ago. Because I think people... There's a theory that it was actually marketing for the new It movie, but it got so out of hand with people reporting it to the police because there were people dressed as clowns just coming out of the woods in America with knives that they just never took ownership of it and just decided to brush it under the rug and pretend it never happened (laughs) okay this was a bad idea (laughs) people do not like clowns it wasn't in the uk it was the us sorry yeah people don't like murderers it seems or thinking (laughs) they're gonna be murdered we live in different times i would be less scared of a man coming out of the forest with a knife than a clown coming out Mm -hmm. of the forest with a knife i think that's what they found yeah they did the research Okay, it wasn't good for the movie, but we did learn something. So put that in a file and we'll use it for something else. It's like all those tests done during World War II. We're sorry they happened, but the results are useful. We, we now we know. Something. No killer clowns. Just don't do it. Oh, yes, so Georgie's dead. He's gone. Bye, Georgie. <laughs> we well, now at his funeral, which is luckily being held in their home. And Bill, is it? He, he can't. I think so, because Bill goes upstairs now. The coffin's in the living room, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I can't remember. Let's say it is, because that's funny. Bill goes upstairs, because the coffin is in the living room and he can't watch TV. And he goes into Georgie's room, where he's just sort of... Look around, he doesn't really look too sad, but he's a child actor. You can't blame too much on them. And he starts flicking through one of the photo albums, uh, looking at pictures of... Well, a lot of them are of the family. Like, it's not until he gets about halfway through and there's one of Georgie, and this is in Georgie's room. It is weird here that it's in Georgie's room. The book has Georgie's name on written on the front. It takes a while to find a picture of Georgie in there. Hey, at least we learned something about his character. He loves albums, scrapbooking, boats. Classic five-year-old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Stamps. <laughs> As he's flicking through Bill, this is going to get confusing, by the way. There's so many other characters with B names coming Bill, up. Bill, Ben, Bev. Yeah. Benny Wise. Laugh. That's, I, I am. <laughs> that joke is so up my alley. <laughs> As he's flicking through, he, he hears Pennywise speaking through the book to him, and he's mocking him. He throws the book across the room, more pages flick across, and blood starts oozing from the, the picture into the room. His parents come up. They can't see the blood. This is the first time you realise that Pennywise only... Whatever supernatural effects he has, only the children can perceive. The the, the, the parents always just blame the, the kid for being weird. In fact, Bill's dad here says, don't you ever come in this room again. So now they're just... They're turning this three-bedroom house into a <laughs> two-bedroom house because their son died. I mean, the whole movie's... Well, not the whole movie. We'll start again. A good amount of the movie is just about how, I guess, people process trauma. 
Bill, we find out later, he really blames himself for George's death. He could have gone out with him that day, but didn't because he was feigning an illness to some degree. And therefore <laughs> feels like he, quote, has blood on his hands. Which is sort of, I guess, sort of shown with how the blood's leaking out of the photo book onto his hands. But adults <laughs> in this and maybe in life just lock everything away. We're just going to never come in here again. Never mention that boy. Much like the results of the study that went bad, we'll <laughs> deal with it later, Carl. This is not for now. Maybe this is a good time for my fucked fact of this episode. Only got Ooh, the one this time. I've been looking forward to this. I thought it would be about the killer clowns in 2017, so I'm interested to see where this goes. I wanted it to be as related to the film as possible. The, the problem with this, okay, so finding them is usually quite hard anyway. You have to do a fair amount of digging through the links in like articles related to the film. And this one was even harder because it was hard to find source material on this film anyway, because Google doesn't like the word it. <laughs> it is about this movie, and it's about... The actor who played Bill. I just want to make it clear. I don't find any humour in this. It is simply a fucked fact. Which is the point of this segment. Adult Bill or Kid Bill? Kid Bill, kid baby. Bill. Billy the Kid. Here we go. On November 11th, 2003, Jonathan Brandis, the actor who played young Bill, was found hanged in the hallway of his <laughs> Los Angeles apartment. What? <laughs> After his death. Friends reported that he'd been depressed about his extended career lull and was reportedly disappointed when his appearance in, in the 2002 war drama, Hearts War, a role he hoped would revive his career, was significantly reduced in the film's final cut. Brandis began drinking heavily and said that he intended to kill himself. Pretty fucked. Join us again next week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what would you say to us? To, like, stop, don't, don't. Pick your career based on something you were doing as a kid, I guess. Don't go, oh, things aren't going as well as they were when I was 12. Just do something. I've had, what, four careers? And I'm 31 years old. Do something new. For the majority of us, life was better Actors when we were 12. are fucking useless anyway. <laughs> what, why? What <laughs> I get so annoyed at actors, which is weird because we do this. We pay so much money to people who pretend to be useful people. <laughs> they go on screen and pretend to be the people who stopped that train in the Unstoppable movie or the people who were on that oil rig in Deepwater Horizon and go, oh, what heroes? What hero Mark Wahlberg is pretending to be a guy who did something awesome? What about the guy though, Carl? <laughs> I'm very sorry he's dead also. Sorry, I was thinking about how annoyed I would be if I, I was a hero and saved many lives and then Mark Wahlberg played <laughs> me in the movie. <laughs> it's not who you imagine, is it? Well, not for you, no. I mean, he's about five foot seven and you're seven foot two in my head. You're but a beanpole be of a man. Mackenzie Crook would be the guy who played me, yeah. Mackenzie Crook for looks and height or James A. Caster for mannerisms. Well, yeah, so there's fuck fact. Back now to older Bill, who remembers Georgie, uh, Georgie's murder now, and decides to pack up and head back to Derry after his phone call from Mike. Also, his stutter has come back. That's not important for part one of the movie. Maybe that'll be important in part two. I doubt it. Also, this guy's interpretation of a stutter is all of the air being sucked out of your lungs in one second. <laughs> he doesn't know what a stutter is. He knows kind of what space is. <laughs> What if words got stuck in your cheeks is kind of the thing he's going for. <laughs> he's watching hours of hamster videos. <laughs> he looks 
kind of like Paul Dano, the actor who plays older Bill. Obviously, oh, yeah, it's not I, Paul Dano. I saw him and went, oh, I know this guy. This guy's been in a bunch of stuff, I'm sure, and then looked into his IMDb and nothing. No. Apart from Seth like Paul Green. Dano. <laughs> I couldn't really find much for any of them. The guy who plays young fat Ben, the only other big credit he had was It Chapter 2 in 2019. He was in that. He had a cameo. There we go. Oh, you got some normal trivia too. Some unfucked trivia. And now we move over onto the very character Cole just mentioned, Ben Hanscom. He, in the future, in the present day, is a... I pronounce that weird? I, don't, I, I heard Hanscom and I'm a child. <laughs> I probably said that, yeah. He is a famous architect. He's been on the cover of Time magazine. That's how fucking good his building designs are. And from the way this is going... He also used to live in Derry. Mike, librarian from earlier, calls Ben, asking him to come back to Derry. Whilst remembering very little of what went on at the time, he he agrees to come back. Straight into another flashback. This is going to be it for a while, by the way. It'll be like present day, we meet an old actor, and then 20 minutes of flashback. Flashback. Ben, young Ben, has just moved to Derry, and he's introducing himself to his classmates, which also is a, I don't know if they actually do this in America, it's a nightmarish practice. Yeah, this sounds awful. Yeah, stand up in front of everyone in your class and tell them everything about yourself. Of course they're going to bully you, which he is immediately. It's very Wolf of Wall Street for a bunch of (laughs) 12-year-olds. Sell yourself to us. Why would we be your friend? Why would you be in this grade? Well, one of the classmates, uh, Henry... He takes an immediate disliking to Ben, who is of slightly larger size than other kids. He is by no means a fat child. This kid isn't fat. I watched um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory recently. Augustus Gloop, not Not that that fat fat. by modern standards. Well, yeah, uh, Henry, who is quite clearly older than other people in the class, he's been held back quite a few times. The actor who plays him is in his mid-twenties. Is he? Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't check it. He looks it. I can check it whilst we're speaking in a moment, but he is not a child. It is strange that as someone who is quite obviously older, because he's been held back, he does still feel the need to abuse and bully these kids to such a degree. I'd be sat quietly in the back if I'd been held back that many times. This is also kind of a carbon copy of other characters from other Stephen King books that are set in a similar a similar setting. Wow, that fucking... Everybody, rewind and listen to everything I said there, where I said the same thing two times, three <laughs> times in a row. Quite amazing that I just did that. What I'm trying to say is, this boy is a carbon copy of the kid from Sometimes They Come Back. Henry is the main antagonist from that book. He's like a greaser type, he bullies other kids... What what am I trading off on? Carl, take over, please. (laughs) Well, this just seems to be a recurring theme in any movie that is set within an American school of some sort. Listeners might want to recall our episode on the faculty. Carl, (laughs) I just went through something traumatic, saying the same thing twice, three times in a row. (laughs) Don't bring up that episode you deleted. (laughs) That I deleted, which was actually all right. Yeah, but... By which I mean, everyone is just fucking horrible to each other. The new kid walks in and he's slightly overweight, so the random greaser man at the back decides, I'm going to kill this kid. They leave class and then they just get a lot of shit from two random girls who never show up again because Beverly's dad doesn't have quite as much money as their dad. Everyone's just horrible to each other. 
And this seems to be the, a thing you see in, when it's in any American high school. And I know we hear a lot of bad things about American high schools nowadays, but I was wondering, is, is that because of Stephen King? You know, like, everyone associates Christmas with snow, even though it never snows at Christmas. Because England went through a mini ice age when Charles Dickens was a kid. And so he wrote all his books with white Christmases. Stephen King has such a habit of writing about horrible, murderous bullies that now it just seems to be a thing that is in every movie about American schools. <laughs> you just blew my mind with so many facts. One, <laughs> I didn't know that about Charles Dickens. Two, yes, I think so. Because, I mean, I haven't seen many movies before that time. Well, you see it in Stand By Me as well, another Stephen King story. Another Stephen King story. Where the adults yeah. don't listen, the kids have to do it all themselves whilst being pursued by random older greaser style i assume he was bullied as a child and that's where it comes from and carrie she gets bullied and then gets her yeah. revenge just stuff like that just seems to be a recurring theme exactly the same yeah and that seems to have then carried over into any other slightly what rated 15 and above movie you see about teenagers i don't think he had the best life if you all haven't read it it's really worth reading his book on writing which is not as much about on writing as you would like, which is why I bought and read it. It is more about Stephen King, and he talks a lot about his life and how hard it was and all the shit he had to go through, and you can tell why he writes about this sort of stuff. So yeah, I think you're right. But how it's become so permeated in our media, I suppose though because he is such a template yeah. for horror. I think he has inspired all the horror writers we have today. Of course, yeah. There is no one, certainly in that genre, probably ever more prolific than him. He brings out a book every year still. He finishes one like every three months. He's probably got a backlog of books waiting to be published right now. <laughs> the guy publishes books and they're all about kids being called fat on their first day of school. <laughs> well, fat Ben walks home. <laughs> Waddles. And he, <laughs> and he runs into Henry, the bully from the classroom earlier. And like we said, Henry immediately wanted to kill this boy. And so he tries to. He pushes him up against the fence. And to be fair, first he starts with, I'm going to carve my name into your stomach, which it's an almost sexually charged scene. But Ben manages to kick him away and he rolls down into the barrens. It's interesting that you say that because Henry is bisexual in the book. Is he? Yeah, I think. Is that why he's that so is, angry? Well, it's a mix of his dad beats the shit out of him. Yeah. And in this movie, his two henchmen or f friends, they don't really have much character to them, but there is one in the book, and it, I think he's a bit more prevalent in the more recent movies, who he has a sexual experience with at one point. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Oh, so Henry and his little gang of greasers, I think that's what they're referred to in this movie, they, they, they go down into the, the barrens and they find Bill we've all been introduced to and eddie which is one of our other main cast of characters they're hanging out there they're building a a dam in just the water source and henry downgrades immediately from killing a boy to just kicking the dam apart but the, the bullies leave they convince him to go and ben comes over thanks bill and eddie and they become friends this is also 30% of the movie is people becoming friends for no other reason than they have also been bullied yeah that there's an annoying amount of this movie is someone referring to the group of them doing something by going, we did that, and then someone else going, we, we, <laughs> we. <laughs> 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 
I think that Stephen King, having had no friends growing up, imagining how easy it would be to make friends in these universes. <laughs> that's it's that's how easy it could be, kids. I'm part of a Wii now. <laughs> He's fantasizing. <laughs> also, he was literally on so much cocaine when writing so these much. books. He talks about that in on writing. There's a a great scene where he, this is towards the end where he's thinking about giving up and he's trying to get through one of his books. And the biggest distraction for him writing on paper is that he's having to put a tissue to his nose every two (laughs) minutes because it just won't stop bleeding. And then he throws the final tissue in and he realizes his bin is overflowing. And then he's like, oh, I've got a problem. (laughs) Not awful, not awful of bloody tissues. It's once one rolls off the top and onto the floor, he thinks, okay, I either have to clean that up or I have to stop doing cocaine. It's so weird, because as a result of that, we get some of the best horror stories ever. Like He still writes, but they're not the smash hits they were back when he was no, this era coking is himself shining. up. It's Carrie, it's it, yeah. it's the first Dark Tower, which was super weird. Yeah, you get some inc- yeah, incredibly out there stories, but famously shite endings. Also, a tremendous lack of editing. You can tell it's written by a man doing coke. It's just sentence after sentence after sentence. There is no self-editing, and because he's so famous by this point, the publishers didn't really remove anything because he can produce books so quickly, and they knew people would buy it. They just pumped them out. So you can tell when you read them, it's. I didn't need this scene. This is just a guy thinking, oh, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. It's a little exhausting. So it's it's kind of hard to get through those books because they're fucking a thousand pages long and fucking 40% of it doesn't need to be there. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie and the more recent movies have shown that, to keep going back to it, the kids all having sex with the girl in order to remember the thing. It could have been cut. Story still works without it, crazily. I might contest that, you know, and not in the way you would expect me to contest it, Carl. I think there is a a semi-decent reason for that being in the book. It is just not explained as properly as it should have been for a normal reader to read it and think, oh yeah, that's necessary. I get, I sort of get it. That is, I haven't read that far out of choice but i get that as this is a movie or book that is very much about growing up and that transition from childhood to adulthood sex is the obvious marker for that but at the same time you know fold it up wipe your nose on it and then put it in the bin (laughs) watch it tumble to the ground (laughs) stop doing cocaine yeah well that's it that bev makes that decision she thinks if we have sex we that's a a marker into adulthood and Pennywise the clown who preys on children on their fear will have less power over us and therefore we will be able to, we have, we stand a better chance of fighting him it's just it's not that clear when you read it like it's it's not like she outright says that it's you have to infer that from the text uh, which a lot of people don't want to infer when they're also reading about kids spaffing into other kids <laughs> well i suppose they aren't spaffing i suppose there's very little cleanup but still oh the good old days god i might cut that i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> this is why we didn't get shortlisted for that award carl sam <laughs> please come back sam why is there no one to rein us in <laughs> Well, now we learn a little bit more about Ben. We're at his house. He walks into his room and he sees that his cousin is reading out of his little notebook. 
And it turns out this is a poem he's written. His cousin starts making fun of him for writing this poem. And Ben just delivers swift and violent justice uh, on this boy. We also learn here that Ben and his mum are living with his aunt and his cousin, possibly even the uncle, but we never see him because Ben's dad died uh, and they can't afford to live alone. So this is what causes all the tension here is that he's just beaten up his cousin, who this is his house, technically. Ben refuses to apologise to his cousin because he doesn't feel like he was in the wrong and he runs off to the barons. This is where the horror starts kicking off again. As he's running there, he stops in like this section where the sewer outlet is uh, and you kind of learn this is where Pennywise likes to hang out and there he sees his father standing in the water coming coming out of the sewer and slowly after trying to lure Ben in he's kind of just taunting him a bit his father transforms into Pennywise and then disappears and then becomes a skeleton in the water grabs his leg it's all just about spooking Ben but Ben never fucking even really flinches you can tell he's kind of scared but he just fucking roots down in the ground so i feel like in this moment this boy invented a thing which is yeah there's fight or flight but then there's also the plant option and it works (laughs) really well for him because pennywise does nothing yeah i was wondering about that there is there must be some rules around how pennywise functions because he's just killing off kids left right and center but just not these kids when he has them alone no so all of this part of the movie is them almost receiving a warning that pennywise is coming for them does that happen to the other kids that are going to be killed i feel like that could be explained better we know people in their class are killed um i think it's linked to what he says at the end of the movie which is kids taste better when they're filled with fear oh so it's like tenderizing them over time there might be more to it like that that like he can't kill them until they're afraid of him if the, if they don't have the fear he can't really touch them because he could have killed Ben in this scene he's clearly afraid he just he just didn't run yeah there almost seems to be some amount of they have to provide him some amount of power within their minds before he actually has that has that power which seems to build throughout yeah which I guess is why he takes the forms we're going to see a lot more of this in the movie but he chooses to take a form of people they know or something that scares them because to not jump ahead but in the 2017 version i 100% believe by the end of it that pennywise is a real thing but if i had only watched part one of this miniseries i could easily believe that he was just a figment of their imagination yes i'm sure that's intentional because he only ever targets them alone yeah he never really touches them the skeleton grabs at ben's leg here but like he doesn't pull him in or anything it's just to scare him And it's not until the very end of this episode we're going to reach where they confront him that he is almost real. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Does he have any other effects? Well, he kills the girl at the beginning, but I think that's almost like the end of like the first batch of killings he did. And this is him moving on to his next ones because he's targeting all these kids at once. He kills six before he targets Bill. And then we've got this like group of seven. The rules of Pennywise... (laughs) Sure. Are definitely different in chapter two than they are in chapter one, I would say. De- he's a lot more involved in chapter two yeah. and part two of this miniseries, as you would hope, because there's not enough of him in this section. There's not enough of him in the movie at all. This was one of Tim Curry's complaints about this miniseries is he filmed a lot and did a lot that, of work. That right? He committed to this. Yeah, yeah. He really... Because that what really bugged me. I was wishing there was more Pennywise because it doesn't really make sense. It's not flubber or something where every time he's on screen it costs them a shitload of money to make he's a dude painted as a clown this guy should be in more of the movie you should watch you should all watch the the making of it i think it's on amazon prime 
uh, the making of it. Of what? I think it's called Pennywise, the making of it. Oh, you're like fucking Google, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Did you mean? (laughs) And it goes into just how passionate and how much Tim Curry put into this movie and how everybody loved it. But then when it came to like the editing process, whatever the TV channel was that showed this, just put less of them in to make it more marketable to a wider audience, which plays into what you were saying. How is this an A-team? Yeah. There's not enough. I think I said this to you in Messenger rather than on here, but yeah, it, it's not an 18. Absolutely not. Certainly not this first part. It's no more violent, gory, anything than say, Stand By Me, which I don't think was anything more than a PG or a 12. I'm, I'm fain to think of anything gory that happens, certainly in this first part. There's a, there's a, I don't think there's... Apart from the book that has blood coming out of it oh, and the I sink sh- that has blood guess, coming out but... of it, but Watership Down would come out around this time. Holy and... shit, yes, and we were all allowed to watch that. <laughs> that should be an 18. My <laughs> God. Well, now we're back in the present day and we meet Beverly. She is, I think, a designer of some kind and she works in the same company as her husband. His name is either Flash or Tom. I think Flash is his nickname, Tom is his real name, or vice versa. No idea. They're trying to close a deal with like an external buyer, but Bev isn't allowed to say it. This is all setting up that Bev is in a relationship with an abusive man who has like a lot of control over her. She's very passive uh, and it's going to link to what it was with her dad. All the talent's hers, but he is exploiting it for his own benefit whilst making her feel that he's doing her a favour. Uh, yes, Seems exactly. to be the gist of it, yeah. Terrifically summed up. Yeah, and they, they do get this deal, and when celebrating it, Bev receives a call from Mike. Ooh, that's happened a few times. And she <laughs> tells Flash that she's going to go back to Maine. Or Tom. Uh, and he, or, yeah, or Tom, one of those guys. Uh, uh, and he delivers a left hand to her face. He immediately is not happy about this. He wants her to stay where she is. He immediately confuses her as of cheating. He knew this yeah. was coming. She's a whore. Uh, obviously, this is all in this guy's head. Yeah, it's, an, it's another one of those in the newer movie. It's kind of explained more that Derry makes you forget. There's a supernatural element to it. Whereas in this, it seems to be almost blocking out trauma, more of a actual psychological thing that they've all done because it was so awful but it almost seems that by in doing that she has kind of forgotten what made her strong and what made her survive during the bad thing because as soon as she gets that phone call and it brings back all those memories she suddenly finds that strength to stand up to this guy who's been kicking the shit out of her for years and she does she starts lobbing things at his face she clonks him and she says if i ever see you again Quote now, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> Amazing. That was a great summary there, because you're right. It is kind of underplayed the, the them forgetting what happens in Derry. I do believe that is a power of Pennywise, at least in my own canon, in that, you know, if you're lucky enough to leave, yeah. it's almost like he wants you to forget, because he only attacks people in Derry. It's like, if you leave, I don't want you remembering what happened here, because then I receive no more trouble. I keep, I keep my hunting ground and nothing's going to come back to get me, especially these kids which have defeated me in the past. No, I'm not even sure it's a if you leave. I think it's just when you grow up because adults who stay must have been tormented by the psycho sewer clown, but no one's aware of him. Yes, you're right. And that I, thematically that links into everything else that's happening in this story. I guess this because I have, maybe this is a good time to bring it up. Uh, we discussed it prior in our chat call. 
all the kids in this, once they've grown up, have like these very successful jobs, which are not relatable to us as an audience. They're like actors, company owners. She's a fashion designer who's just like won the biggest deal of her life. One's a talk show host or something. I feel the reason for that is almost like it being a reward. Hmm. Well, not so much a reward from Pennywise, but something further to distract you so you don't dwell on the past. If you have all this success and all this money and have such a good life in the future, you've never got any reason to go back to where you came from. I see. I took it as more of a Stephen King view on successful people, that in order to be successful, you have to throw yourself 100% into something and that's something they've all done in order to block out the awful thing that happened before Mm. and maybe that's what he because as a person who writes the shit he does I feel like bad things must have happened to him at some point and he's a success because all these people they're successful but they've all gone off and done their own thing they haven't stayed in touch they're all alone and although they're successful they're weaker for it because they're alone they don't have those friends to support them. That's almost what those, especially for Beverly, what that phone call is, is the strength of having friendship and support allows her to leave in some way. I love it. <laughs> well, I think you're right. <laughs> My next note is just as deep. I wrote, so does Seth Green never grow? <laughs> well, uh, Bev does escape her, her husband. She goes back to Maine. Now we're straight into another flashback where Ben leaves a poem he wrote for Bev, the one his cousin made fun of, on her front porch. She finds it, she's like wooed by just how great it's written, but her dad walks into the room and this is very much a parallel to the relationship that we've just been shown. In this movie, I don't think it's touched on as much, but in the book, he does try to rape her. I think she evades it. I've never read the book, Cole, you'd have to tell me. I'm not recalling it. But um, it rings a bell. Recalling what? <laughs> I've got to go back to Derry. <laughs> That's the premise of this movie, isn't it? I'm not recalling it. <laughs> but that, that does ring a bell. But I, think, I don't know if that's because it happens in the book or if it's very much hinted at in the 2017 version. He is obsessed with her becoming an adult and sex and her having yeah. sex with one of the other boys. And he's very physically controlling. He assumes any sort of friendship she might have with a male means that she's sleeping with them. He gets pretty rough with her, but she she runs out the front door and then Ben finds her crying and he brings her to the Barons. He introduces her to the gang. She says, we, they become a we. Yep. (laughs) And and then Richie and Stan show up because the writers have realised if we keep going at this pace, it's going to take fucking 10 hours. So let's put two other characters in right now. Richie is played by Seth Green. If we didn't introduce child Stan until his phone call, he would just pop up right at the end. (laughs) Yeah. Stan kills himself, by the way. We don't have to wait to get there. As soon as he gets the phone call, he ends himself. So we wouldn't have gotten his flashbacks which is why it's important he shows up now. And then all the gang, they build the dam together. This is what unifies and and builds their relationship, I guess. There were so many characters. I was so worried whilst taking notes that I wouldn't be able to remember who all these people were. But also, I wish Sam was here, because all these kids are, in this moment, destroying an ecological habitat by building (laughs) this dam. They have no idea 
what the consequences of their actions will be. And I'm sure right now, our missing and beloved Sam would show some compassion for all the ducks in the world. So, Sam, this moment's for you, buddy. That motherfucker would be starting a scam appeal right now in order to bring in money for the ducks. <laughs> for all the endangered ducks. When do you see a duck anymore, Hey, eh? Can you remember? <laughs> you can't, can you? <laughs> oh, miss you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> now, onto one of like the most striking scenes of the movie. Bev goes back home, she's in the bathroom, and she starts hearing a voice coming from the sink. Obviously, it's Pennywise up to his old games again. And then a balloon starts to expand from the drain and it pops and there is blood everywhere. She calls on her dad. He can't see the blood. We've already established that the adults can't. But she is freaking out. She then pretends it was a spider because he's getting pretty angry at her for calling him in when he didn't need to be. And he's like, oh, I'm real worried about you, Bev. And you can you can tell what line that's going down. It's an interesting scene. It was the first one where I really started to think about why can't the adults see this stuff is it as simple as well adults don't believe in monsters and pennywise a lot of pennywise power pennywise's powers really play on imagination and that's what a lot of adults lack so that lack of belief in the supernatural or does that make sense no definitely in my mind it's more because i i love the supernatural stuff so i'm always willing to believe that rather than this being a thematic thing it's almost like pennywise almost has a glamour he can install in adults because he doesn't like the taste of them. He does. He likes the fear in children. He likes their imagination. That's what he feeds on. So he actively stops them from seeing anything he produces and only focuses on the children to make them more afraid. Because if you cut off a child from the adults who are supposed to be this stable force in their lives, they become even more afraid. Because yeah, we know he can make himself visible to adults if he wants to because chapter the two happens. part of the movie. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. The next hour and a half. <laughs> or is that because they already know he exists? Well, like you said earlier, though, surely a lot of the adults in the town do because their friends would have gone missing. And and uh, uh, this is referenced in this half of the movie. It certainly is in the book. But this is like a cycle for it. Yeah. It, it feeds for a period of time. It goes to sleep for like 30 years and then it feeds again, which is common in a lot of supernatural folklore where something will feed, go to sleep. I think the Wendigo does that. It'll feed for a year and then go back to sleep for however long and hibernate. But let's not get too much into that because I could talk all day about shit like that. Now we're back to the present day. You thought we'd met all the characters by now and you are absolutely wrong. We haven't met Eddie as an adult. Oh, I'm going to leave that horrible sound I just made with my throat in. And now we are, we're here. <laughs> he's received his call and his mum is really overly concerned that he's leaving. Eddie has kind of this strange relationship with his mum where he was sickly as a child and she looked after him. It was almost like this Munchausen-y type yeah, thing. Yeah, there's... It's not really played on in this, but he's not actually as ill as she makes out, I think, in... Especially in the more modern take on this. She is kind of, yeah, projecting all this onto him and making him think he's more real than he is because the only friend he needs is mum. Yes, it is very much that. I think it is Munchausen's. No, Munchausen's by, by proxy, proxy, yeah. Usually that's for the sympathy of others, so you get other people's attention. But it can also be for where you want to keep your kid inside, because that kid's your best friend. We. <laughs> yeah, we. <laughs> Us. <laughs> 
Eddie is also very successful. He owns like a limo company, a personal driver company, something like that. And they attend to the stars because they even mention Al Pacino. And we roll straight into another flashback because of course we do. And the kids are now all going back to the Barrens. I guess it's important to note here that because they've built the dam, like the the, the, the section where the sewer is, is overflowing. Yeah. I, I don't remember if this plays a part in the second part of the movie. Or if this is just because they've built the dam. But there does seem to be a link between water and it. I wanted to discuss hanging this. Around it. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because like water is it's a symbol of purity. Like it always has been in, in most religions and like also supernatural law. That's why things like vampires can't cross water, or like why you put uh, witches into the water after you've cut them up and shit. But it, it's almost like he's trying to taint the water source yeah. for the whole town, which is why he hangs out in the sewers. And like, he literally is in the center of the sewers when we see him at the end of the movie. Like there's this big junction which connects throughout the whole town and that's where he hangs out. Yeah, there's definitely, there's a rule established within this one that Pennywise doesn't seem to be able to attack or even be present unless there is a water source present in some way. Like he gets Georgie through the sewer drains. He comes through Beverly's sink. He meets Ben and pretends to be his dad for a second when he's like at that marshy bit. Richie was the boiler room and Eddie was the showers. But that doesn't seem to be something that carries on into chapter two. Mm. So it seems to be almost something related to childhood in some way or related to the children's imagination because I guess you attach more of those supernatural, scary, mystical elements to locations and places when you're a kid. Like the scary house, this, the big smashed up building in the sewers, that's going to be where the scary monster lives. Whereas as an adult, you wouldn't do that. As a child, you're also pure. That is when you're at your purest, you're untainted by all other things not these just kids. like water is. N- no, not once they do the dirty deeds, uh, which is the transition into part two. So <laughs> very likely that. I remember why I thought of this. It's because, and this scene's coming up soon, where Mike gives his presentation in the class when we're introduced to him as a kid, he talks about how everyone, 200 people at the industrial ironworks go missing, but then he adds on, it's because that's where the water source for the whole town was. And that's where I started thinking, this obviously was like the beginning event for it. This is where he started out. Yeah. And as part of his presentation, he says that the original settlers there were wiped out by something as well. But there seems to be an established rule that he doesn't affect adults anymore. And I wondered if that was the whole supernatural imagination thing, like back when people were settling America, people did believe more in religion and fairy tales and the horrors of the world. Monsters were real. Here be monsters. Whereas adults don't have that sort of fear anymore that he could tap into. So he's almost getting weaker as the pe- the only people he can now well, less people attack are... Ki- yeah, he's Santa Claus. <laughs> I suppose that those... I think that was... The reason they mentioned that is because that's when his... It's not a spaceship. He, he lands on like a meteor or something, doesn't he? Yeah. It's like a cocoon, an egg that he hatches out of. Because he is a spider type being, we find out in the second part. Anyway... Eddie's having his own flashback now. Yes, we're, we're, we're in that. But then we see Eddie is in school, and this is now the link to his experience with Pennywise. The phys ed teacher refuses to let him to go to his next class because he hasn't taken a shower. Eddie's a very small boy. He doesn't want to take a shower in front of the other kids. Well, his mum's convinced him that he... <laughs> his mum's convinced him that he will get ill from using showers that other kids have used. So that fear that has been instilled in him by his mum 
Pennywise is then able to take advantage of within that room that he's been told, if you go in there and use that room, you'll die. I loved the effect where it's only a small drain in the centre of the room. Pennywise like sticks his hand out, he can't get out, but then there's almost like this claymation Claim- effect yeah. where he pushes the hole apart and then he just climbs out and he could kill this boy right now. Eddie is afraid enough to eat. But he doesn't. This is like the setup. I, I love this. And this is really the most we see of Pennywise until the end when they fight him. But he is just giving himself to this role, Tim Curry. And I, I love this. He's a lot more abusive in this in terms of the slurs he uses compared to how I remember. He refers to Eddie as wheezy and girly boy. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, calls yeah. him Ben fat boy. Yeah. Almost like he's playing into the, the abuse there receiving at school oh absolutely but that's that's his whole like he's watching the whole time which was kind of why i wondered within this version is he not necessarily real and actually a figment of their imagination because unless he's specifically focused on these kids how does he know they're that he seems to know everything about them I think there is stuff in the movie that alludes to him being able to be omnipresent in a way. Because, well, for one, like you said, he's certainly in the, the newer ones, he's connected to the town. He almost has control over Derry, which is why Derry has that effect on the people of the town. But in this movie, it's a lot more literal because he can turn into that shining ball of light yeah which assumes he can take a form which is not corporeal so he could just go around and be part of people's lives but then i i imagine that you know there's a link between him and the minds of the children and there is a thematic reason for that but i do like to think about things in the supernatural sense so i'm just gonna say the clown can read people's minds carl but we're still friends yeah we (laughs) we (laughs) i love this movie man i've really had a good time watching it I was worried because I know how much you love it and I love the 2017 chapter one. Excellent I wasn't as, as big on chapter two, but I loved Nobody chapter is. one and I was worried that I would let you down by hating it. But I love Stand By Me and I got the same sort of, I got nostalgic vibes for a childhood I never had in a time I didn't live in somehow. I get the same thing. That's why I love all Stephen King movies. They all have this similar feel. I love thinner I watched Needful Things recently. I love, obviously, The Shining is such a fucking big one. But they all have this, it's difficult to explain this. They're my perfect Sunday movie. And especially these 80s, 90s ones, because they're so campy, because they're so low budget, they're perfect to me. The kids are, well, the chapter one part of it is all set in the 50s as they're all hanging out in small town America with one small high street, and they're all in the cinema watching a black and white horror movie in their popcorn, drinking their Coke. Everyone's just kind of having a great time, and you just go, oh, memories. And I was never there. (laughs) And I know that it's not real. I know that 1950s America was a horrible place for a lot of people. (laughs) But ooh, warm and fuzzy when you just see it through the lens of an 80-year-old white man looking back, I guess. <laughs> I would start a Stephen King podcast, you know. That's really <laughs> my my dream zone. There's so much you can talk about with all of them, and oh, we don't need to do this. I don't need to talk about how much I love them. You know I do. Let's move on. We're now onto the present day again, and up next for his phone call is Richie, who is <laughs> Seth Green, well, he was the boy. Rich is an adult now. He's a TV host or something. I don't know. We see him on a camera. He's like presenting something and then he comes off camera. It's another big job. Then we go into his flashback after he receives his call and everything. And all the gang are discussing together what they want to be when they grow up. When 
just some random police officer comes over, sees that they're all hanging out in the barrens, and is like, you absolutely cannot build dams in this area. He doesn't tell them to take it down. What he says next is, if you come down here again, make sure you all come together. And then he fucks off. Oh yeah, very sound cop, to be fair. Yeah, we're sure, yeah. Take the dam down if it's such an issue. He said, there's flooding everywhere, and then just goes about his day. He didn't do anything about it. Oh, and there's a lot of flitting about now, so we've got to hold on tight, everyone. Richie is now in school, and these flashbacks have to take place in several places because the writers realise they're running out of time for just part one. Richie's now in school, he knocks food into a teacher whilst having an argument with Henry, who was the greaser boy from earlier, and the teacher's like, go find the janitor, clean this fucking up, I'm not doing it. The teacher was a famous actor, and I'm struggling now to realise who it was. Did you recognise him? See, I recognised everyone in this movie and then found out I'd never seen them in anything before. So yeah, I did see Paul him Dano. and go, that's that's someone I know. But then just went, I've, I've thought that for everyone. And unless it's Seth Green, it hasn't been true. So, so he goes down to the basement to find the janitor. He's not there. So he tries to find the, like, the mop himself. And here, which is like the most standout scene in this movie for me because it's so weird. Pennywise is disguised as a werewolf which apparently Richie's really afraid of. He's disguised as the werewolf from the movie they were watching in the cinema. Yeah, okay, I cut that scene out because it was nothing. I don't know, all the other reasons Pennywise pretends to be someone is something so hard-grained into these children, and the thing for Richie is the werewolf in the movie he just saw. Yeah, we never really get a very deep backstory for Richie. If they do what they did in it chapter two then adult richie gets a lot more of a story because he's dealing with that? homosexuality in the 80s oh, okay but yeah we're just kind of we're given nothing about him at this point and his big Not fear is that movie they watched five minutes ago i guess just to give him a scene because everyone needs to have experienced the clown because his and his isn't even the worst one i would say not that scary or stands is the worst one which we will get to. I don't even remember it right now. Exactly. We're really just rushing through clown experiences so that they all know anywise exists. Well, he runs out of the room. He doesn't want any part of this werewolf stuff. And we fucking roll straight into another flashback now. Like, There's a bit of a scene in the present day again where uh, Mike, he does like a bit of a narration and that's it. And then it rolls straight into his flashback where he's given the presentation in the class. And he's essentially given us exposition on Pennywise being in the town for a long time. Mike devoted his entire life to going, have you noticed that everyone fucking dies here? He does that all the way from his first day in class, stood in front of everyone, to adulthood showing up at crime scenes, but still somehow ends up choosing to become a librarian. Well, I guess for the research, yeah. But he spent all this time here. He is the only one who hasn't forgotten. That's why he's able to make these phone calls. He only starts it because of the picture of Georgie, and like he's like, oh shit, that's supernatural, therefore I, I phone everyone. But he could have spent those 30 years searching for this sleeping clown. He knows where it is. It's below where he went at the end of this movie. So it's his fault that we've had to watch this. Because he spent 30 years reading books, we had to watch this movie, Carl. It's his fault Stan is dead. <laughs> yes, definitely. As the kids are discussing the, the strange things that are happening in the town, Mike runs towards them. They're all hanging out at the old industrial works, by the way, so clearly that wasn't the sewers. Mike's running towards them because he's being chased by Henry and the Greaser 4. This gang 
grows and shrinks at whatever rate the movie needs it to. The other greasers are not important. The, what do they call themselves? The Lucky Seven, and they've got another Oh, yeah, yeah, the the Losers Club. The Losers Club and the Lucky Seven, yes. That's two very juxtaposing nicknames they give their gang. It doesn't shy away from some of the worst parts of 1950s America that we kind of alluded to earlier. N-bombs are thrown at Mike. Stan is only part of the Losers Club because he's Jewish, and therefore, obviously, they can't be friends with that guy. Yeah. Bill has a stutter. That's it. Just anyone who's different. Fat, stutter, Jewish, African-American. Poor person. Bev's poor. Poor person. Sickly kid. Richie's ginger, I guess. Richie's... And he's Seth Green. Yeah, yeah. But they don't know that. They've got to pretend he's not... <laughs> but Seth I know Green that. And I know yeah. he's going to try sell me a bored ape in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Seth. <laughs> I'm glad they were all stolen, Seth. I'm glad you lost them all. So this is where really all these seven guys gang up. They become the lucky seven and they start throwing stones at Henry and the gang. And they even beat on them a little bit. So it's quite a good scene. Uh, did you ever play Rock Wars when you were a kid, Cole? Did you ever stand in the street and throw rocks at each other? No, watching that hurt me. I mean, you, you throw s- stones, but these were not stones. These were rocks oh, no, the size of their rocks. heads. Yes, yeah. Yeah. we used to throw stones at each other. Yeah, the we little to- stones you find on the side of the road. Yeah, you might throw them, but if anyone in this fight actually got hit, they're going to a different school from now on. <laughs> I think there's only one school, mate. I think that's why <laughs> Home all school. these kids have been mashed together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, just after this, uh, you know, Henry runs away, and Mike shows all the gang his dad's collection of historical stuff about the town, which is like a big scrapbook of pictures of like the the ironworks yeah. and, and this is this is Stan's only Pennywise experiences. Yes. Pennywise now shows up in the picture. The picture starts moving and then Pennywise is just doing front flips in the picture. Now I know why I don't remember Stan's Pennywise encounter. Yeah. And why you made that joke. It's because he doesn't have because it's yes. shit. It's okay, he's gonna kill himself. The problem is I, I can't remember the book completely, but in the movie, the more recent movie, he almost has his entire face eaten off and he is harassed beyond belief by this clown. And you go, Yeah, fair enough, that's why he couldn't bring himself to go back. They overcompensated. In this it's just like, Oh, we saw a clown in a photo move and then he's just broken for the rest of the chapter one, he's just reciting the Cub Scout like the scout's honor thing every all the time and then having a mental breakdown because he saw a picture move it's like you were at the cinema five minutes ago this cannot be that mind bending <laughs> the talkies <laughs> <laughs> yeah so as i was saying just as they they start to see like uh, sketches of pennywise and stuff and realize this has been part of the town's law for much longer and as they flick through one of the photos starts to turn into moving pictures and a movie and Pennywise actually starts to talk to them. He's swinging about on the lamppost and stuff and threatens to kill them all. Bill is positive that the clown is actually afraid of them. He he can feel it and asks his friends, all these we, to, to stop <laughs> we? them. To stop him together. <laughs> so here Stan receives a call from Mike. We're in present day now. This is kickstarting the end of the movie. Does, does Stan's wife ever get any sort of answer? Because her entire understanding of what happens is they start talking about having kids he gets a bit frisky 
and then oh, just yeah. goes upstairs and kills himself. How would you ever come to terms with that? <laughs> the phone call happens, like they both hear the phone ring, so at least you can blame it on that. But maybe that was just a stopgap between <laughs> having sex with your wife and killing yourself. <laughs> we should have kids. Excuse me just one second. I'll just, uh, just gonna pop upstairs. I don't want to be part of another we. <laughs> he starts running himself a bath. And then we get another flashback. The kids have all set up like bottles and cans in the, the barrens. And Beverly is becoming like the sharpshooter here. She's nailing every single one of them with a slingshot. That's her role when they're going to face it. So specifically, these are like silver yeah. knickknacks because Bill believes that they can kill it. But I don't believe this is based on anything other than Richie saw Pennywise as a werewolf once. Because while Silver is like concurrent throughout a lot of lore, not at all has it been mentioned in this movie with anything to do with Pennywise. And it's only the fact that we've seen a werewolf that it is prevalent. No, I agree. This is one of the things that made me think that he was, to a good extent, a part of their imagination. Because one of them questions why they would think silver works, and then Bill just goes, well, if we believe, we just have to believe oh, yeah, it yeah, is, yeah. and then it will. And, spoiler, it is and it does. Well, we don't know that something else wouldn't have worked if shot at yeah, Pennywise's he, head. He just had the most Maybe fragile head of all time. Humpty Dumpty head. She shoots him in the head with the silver thing, and he cracks open like an egg. He Humpty Dumpty's yeah. like crazy. <laughs> oh, this made me think, maybe Pennywise takes on the weaknesses of any form he takes. Like, the only reason Silver can hurt him is because he became the werewolf. And because he became Ben's dad, maybe cancer could get him as well. Oh, was it cancer? Yeah. I think it was cancer, yeah. The big C, was Eddie's dad was the big C. Oh, Ben's dad was the Korean War, so Pennywise now can't go into the Korean War. Okay, so things that can defeat Pennywise. (laughs) Silver, the Korean War. Uh, He was a balloon at one point when he was scaring Mike in the library. So they should have taken a pin. It was a yellow balloon. So a pin, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the three things so far. I like this. And we're going to carry this into the second part of the movie. The kids, they gang up now. They head straight into the sewers. They're going to kill fucking Pennywise. But Henry and the Greaser gang see them all go in. They still got blood in their sights. They want revenge for what these kids have done to them, embarrassing them all those times. So they follow them in. One of the Greasers is convinced to go in alone for some reason. Who knows why? But immediately a shining light appears, which I, I, I'm, I think is Pennywise. It yeah. is Pennywise, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm never quite understood it but he seems to actually be comprised of light in some way yeah i'm sure it means something i don't know what that is but that light kills this boy (laughs) i know there are shining lights and i know there's some sort of cosmic turtle but (laughs) cocaine is a hell of a drug other than that my bin is full and i need to go to bed The Losers Club, they all congregate in a junction in the middle of sewers. This is going to be their final standoff with Pennywise. But they realise Stan is missing. There's only six of them. And it turns out Henry has kidnapped Stan, taken him hostage. And as Henry is about to kill a boy. They realise Stan is missing. And after this scene with Stan, where Stan gets away, Stan comes back to the gang and they've done nothing to go get him back. They've acknowledged that he's missing now. One of them went, oh no. And then they just stood there. Well, that's because Ben introduced the third tactic. You know, his fight or flight, 
but Ben has shown the <laughs> merits of plant. <laughs> so they all plant. Stan is back. And Stan comes back, yeah. But yeah, so Henry's taken Stan hostage, and the light shows back up again, and then we see what happens to the boy this time. It folds him in half, and then sucks him into the sewers, straight out of the shadow. We can see where it got its inspiration. <laughs> and for some reason, Henry's hair turns white. I don't know if he's in the second part. I cannot remember. But it feels like that has some significance. Because I think he's changed in some way by the presence of it, right? And he like, yeah, he... oh yes, he tries to kill people in the second part. I think he goes proper nutcase in the next one. I think he's yes. sectioned when they initially return to Derry. But it is interesting that in a book and movie where there is a monster killing and eating children, Stephen King decides to have these psychotic teenagers that are no less scary and murderous than this monster. It's not, yeah, what is he saying about people, I guess? What, that they are just as capable of being monsters as this fucking child-eating clown that lives in the sewers. I think this is just the coke, mate. He wrote <laughs> too many bad guys into the book and forgot to take one of them out. He was writing two books at the same time, one about a kid in a class trying to kill all the other classmates, and one about a clown trying to kill children, and they just ended up in the same book. Those books met each other and they said, We? And became <laughs> one book. But don't try and Google it, because you'll never find it. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, so now we're back in the junction. Stan joins them. They've planted, so that's really worked for them. And the Lucky Seven all join hands together, because in this moment, they believe if they all have faith in themselves, yeah, they the can defeat the power of friendship thing. Yeah. The, the Greasers all lost because they were all alone. Separated. Yeah. yeah. The, one of them was separated from the other two. He just gets, he gets piped, and then... <laughs> the the other two aren't really friends it's the strangest friendship group in history because none of them like each other they all just abuse each other but they all love the same brand of hair gel and leather jackets <laughs> so oh man. it wasn't hair gel in the 50s it was like whale blubber they did not have hair gel <laughs> maybe this is more what it looked like than when in greece everyone's got the amazing swept elvis hair but in this, it is just disgusting. Oh, no, there's no sweeping. You pick a direction, and that is the way all your hair goes. Pick a direction and pull. <laughs> <laughs> That's a quote taken straight from the sex scene between the kids. <laughs> a blinding light shines out over all our heroes, and a fog starts to rolling. They all hold hands in a circle, and this is a great scene now where it tries to lure each of them out of the circle by taking on the form of something else that's happened in the movie. So for Bill, he shows him Georgie, and the other kid's like, that's not your brother, that's obviously Pennywise. Fucking obviously it is. And then, this is, Bev says that to him, by the way, and then Bev's it's dad your shows up. Your brother's dead. Yes. And then Bev's dad shows up, and she's like, oh shit, dad, you don't even like your dad, and you're about to leave the circle for him. And then the other kid's like, that's not your dad. Georgie was just stood there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then after those two quite, quite pivotal moments, because they mean something to the movie and to those characters, the werewolf hands creep <laughs> up behind Richie, which is just such a downgrade yeah. for what's just happened. Richie so seems odd. to have no like, issues in his life. No. But what I don't get about this scene is it seems to establish the whole power of friendship thing so they can all hold each other's hands and be together and it can't get them if they're all together. And then he just walks up and grabs Stan and walks away with him. Like it was that easy. Let's get into that. So they think they're winning 
And then all of a sudden Pennywise is in the circle and it turns out he's been holding Stan's hand the entire time. So I like to think he was stood in that circle and then he just lets go of one of their hands and grabs Stan. So this is where he has become a corporeal being. Like they get him off Stan and they say, Look, we're going to fucking kill you Pennywise. And he's, he's not having any of this. He has a great quote here. He's, he says, I am eternal, the eater of worlds and children. And I find that such an odd downgrade to end the trifecta on. I'm eternal, world eater, and I get the rumblies for children. <laughs> like, to put that in perspective, let's flip it. Do you think that's how God introduced himself to Moses on Mount Sinai? I'm eternal, creator of the universe, and ants. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did those two things. <laughs> It's a downgrade. End on something bigger or end on the two. I know three is the golden rule, but if you don't have anything bigger than Eater of Worlds, stop there. It's good enough. Absolute one-hit wonder. <laughs> the Chesney Hawks of monsters. <laughs> Here, Stan takes the initiative, to be fair, which is odd considering what he does pretty soon after it. He sprays it with his inhaler, but he says that it's battery acid. Yeah. And I'm not sure here if it's his... It's like, if I believe this is that battery acid... It will burn That him. was my assumption was, I believe, because they also believe that silver will kill him and therefore it does. Yeah, it does. Wow. It does some damage. It, yeah. it, so, yeah, it cracks his, his head. Yeah. Yeah. His face starts to melt. Bev nails him with some of the, the silver knickknacks they'd loaded up and his head cracks open and Pennywise is like, all right, you got me. Eater of worlds defeated by children, and he dips into the drain at the centre of the sewer, which I also find weird, by the way. The sewer, where all our water goes, has its own sewer, where all its water goes. Where does it end? We don't have time to get into that. They celebrate, but then they group up outside, and they're not sure whether or not it is actually dead. So they say, look, if he ever comes back, we've got to agree to all return to Derry and stop it. Fast forward to present day, we're back to Stan, his wife goes upstairs to find him in the bathtub, and you can be bloody sure that guy has slit his wrists. He does not want any part of this. He, he saw a done. photo move. <laughs> what would you expect well, of him? I suppose his actual like memory of it was defeating him, and that's the best one of any of them. Yeah, it, it never gets in his head. It doesn't yeah. know what he's scared of, unless it. the whole point is that Pennywise didn't have to take any other form because Pennywise was his ultimate fear. Stan's who he started with. That's why he's a clown. Stan is also an eternal being trapped in an eight-year-old's body. Pennywise has been fucking with Stan his entire life and occasionally pops off and messes with other people. And then Stan has enough, so he grows up and leaves and then kills himself. Great movie. It could end here. We could never do part two, Cole. I don't know if we will. It's us. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next spoopy season maybe we, next week this, this is our new headcanon <laughs> well that, that that's the end of part one and in terms of us the end of the movie Carl so <laughs> oh okay when you said in terms of us I thought you were about to break up with me not we not we we <laughs> what would we be without you Carl what I was going to say was in terms of this is the end of the movie and therefore the oncoming of the question and since you're the only other person here I have to ask it as so you. Evan oh. you think that was good so far do you <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, actually, that's two different questions. I thought it was good, definitely. Is it good so far? No. So far, it is not good because nothing has fucking happened. It has been 80 minutes of phone calls and then (laughs) 10 minutes of a bit of clown stuff. But... I love it. This, like I said during the episode, this is my, this is my jam. I love movies like this. I love Stephen King movies. I love Tim Curry. It's the perfect amalgamation of everything I love. But so far, no. But (laughs) seeming as everybody hates part two, maybe I do love this so far. (laughs) Maybe this is the only bit I like. (laughs) What about you, Cole? Do you think this is good so far, do you? I'm a little sad now you said that part two is bad. I was really looking forward to seeing another interpretation of it because chapter two was so disappointing in the most recent movie. But like I said, I, I really enjoyed it. it. It gave me those Stand By Me vibes, which is a movie that I absolutely love that we will never do on this podcast because I don't ever want to take that sort of approach to it. But yeah, I, I wish there'd been more Tim Curry and more Pennywise, but so far I'm enjoying myself a lot more than I thought I would and... Me too. I don't have to break your little heart. We are still we. We. (laughs) I think the only reason people don't like part two is because of the ending. And that's not the movie's fault. It is the book's fault. It's cocaine's fault. It's that bloody bin full of bloody tissues, (laughs) Paul. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining me and thank you all for listening. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on the platform you're listening on. Follow us over on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube at So You Think Pod. Join us again next week for either part two of this movie or join us again next spooky season for part two of this movie. <laughs> Until then... Bye, Georgie. Goodbye. Goodbye.